0: Father, we ask that as we open up your word that you would open up our hearts and our minds and that you would make us attentive to your voice. God, we recognize that we are surrounded every day by a cacophony of voices that come to us from the surrounding culture that tell us to buy more, to get more, to uh, get the latest technology. Uh, They tell us how we should find identity and worth. And, and we pray, God, that you would break through all of those voices and that your voice would be louder and stronger and more defining in our life. And we pray, God, that you would do this by the power of your spirit as your word goes out. And we ask this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Amen. So I wonder if any of you have found yourself in any awkward or uncomfortable or tense situations yet this Christmas season. So last week, Alicia was minding her own business in the line at Whole Foods, and there was a lady standing in front of her who was in a rather, you know, vigorous debate with her junior high-age children. And she was clearly exacerbated and frustrated and getting more and more angry. And she finally reached a breaking point and she yelled at her kids, stop acting like three-year-olds and go stand over there in the corner until I'm done checking out. And least she was thinking in her mind, there's probably a better way to handle this than that. And then the lady behind Alicia, who was a young lady, probably in her 20s, you know, most likely purchasing some fresh green juice and some gluten-free bread from Whole Foods. And she spoke up, she looked the lady in her eyes and she said, lady, you are abusing your children. Dang. Now, the, the angry lady's response was, show, was so shocking and so countercultural. I had to write it down. She said this. She said with tears in her eyes, thank you so much for that correction. I know your words were strong, but sometimes we need strong language to wake us up. And then she said, kids, I'm so sorry, and I'm so grateful for this nice young lady who was wise beyond her years and had the courage to speak up and to point out the error of my ways. Actually, that's not at all what happened. <laughs> she, uh, <laughs> she looked at her and she said, you need to shut up and mind your own business, you. And then she let out some expletive. And uh, the lady turned back and calmly looked at her in the eyes again and said, you are abusing your children. You are an abuser and you need to stop and that didn't help things, and it just continued to escalate from there, and it snowballed and got more angry, and it was just out of control. You know, the security guards were called, and uh, it was just... You know, there's a lot of things we can learn from that story. (laughs) But the lesson I want to draw to your attention this morning is that most of us don't change simply because somebody tells us we need to. Uh, Almost none of us are shamed or embarrassed into making profound changes into our life. Uh, Almost none of us change simply because somebody unsolicited walks up to us and tells us we need to do something different than what we're doing. And of course, you know this to be true. It's true, uh, you know, with people in your life that you want to see change. You know, you want your parents to eat healthier so that they can live longer. And so you go to them, you say, hey, I think you need to eat different and start exercising more. Or or maybe you go to your kids and you say, look, you need to put down the social media and turn off those screens, stop spending so much time online. Or or maybe you go to your parents and you're like, dad, you need to stop drinking. Or, or, Or any number of things you see needing change in people around you. And look, it just doesn't help as much as we wish it would work, right? I mean, don't you wish it were that easy? That you could just walk up to somebody and tell them what they need to do and they would do it? I mean, wouldn't that make parenting so much easier? Wouldn't that make being a kid so much easier to your parents? Wouldn't that make being a sibling so much easier or roommate, or a friend? You just told people or, or if you could just walk up to strangers wherever you were who were doing something they shouldn't be doing and just tell them to do something different. But, you know, change is a whole lot more complicated than that, isn't it? we human beings we are complicated people and change is is it's complex and the bible knows this and you know the, the bible is concerned with change you know jesus is not just interested in having us get more information he's interested in our lives being transformed Uh, He's not simply interested in us uh, getting a ticket into the kingdom. He's interested in the kingdom and its ethics getting into us and transforming and changing the way we live. You know, there's a whole lot in the New Testament about change. And some of you might be new to Christianity. You might not know this. You think, you know, Christianity is primarily concerned with the afterlife and, and about the by and by and about getting people so heavily minded that they're no earthly good. But actually, the Bible has a great deal of profound wisdom surrounding this, 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 this issue of how human beings change. And the primary word that the the New Testament uses to describe change. You know, the word that it uses that really captures, kind of in a nutshell, the issue of change is this word, repent. And in the the original language, it's the word metanoia. And we talked about this last week. Uh, Metanoia comes from uh, two uh, Greek words. It's a compound word, meta, uh, implying change or transformation, and nous, uh, which uh, refers to our mind. And it's a word describing profound and deep change of our minds and our imaginations and the entire course and direction of our lives. And, you know, the figure in the New Testament that is most associated with this call to a profound and deep and meaningful transformation of the mind and heart and imagination, the prophet who was all about repentance in the Bible was John the Baptist, And incidentally, John the Baptist is also the Advent prophet. Uh, He is the prophet that the church over the last 2,000 years, you might not know this because a lot of our own Christmas traditions in our little evangelical worlds has ignored John the Baptist because he's not quite, you know... Christmas, of course, is the warmest and the coziest of all the holidays. And there is nothing warm and cozy about this fiery prophet in the wilderness with his camel's hair and his diet of locusts and honey, you know. And, uh, but, but he is, throughout church history, he's been associated with Advent because his role is to prepare people for the coming of God among us. He was there in the first century to prepare the children of Israel for God's coming in a manger. And he's here with us now to prepare us for the coming of God again. And his call on our lives is to repent. He says to change, to repent. And so I want to invite you to explore once again this topic of repentance this morning. And we're going to kind of do a, a little bit of a deep dive into the doctrine of repentance. And I want us to develop a little bit of a biblical theology of repentance because to understand repentance is to understand the New Testament vision of change, profound, deep, and meaningful change. And so number one, we're going to talk about the essence of repentance. And then second, we're going to talk about the fruit of repentance. And then finally, we're going to talk about where repentance Begins where we can start on this whole work of repentance. Notice, let's first talk about the essence of repentance. Notice in your Bibles in John or in Luke chapter 3, verse 2 and 3, it describes the ministry of John the Baptist. And again, it talks about his work of preparing God's people by engaging in this ministry of proclaiming a baptism of repentance. Look what it says. The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. By the way, at this point, there had been silence of divine revelation in the people of Israel for generations. And they knew a lively, you know, experience of the prophetic word and divine revelation coming to them through the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. But there had been a long night of silence And the people were hungry for a divine word. And here the word of God comes alive again after a few hundred years of silence through the prophet John. So the word of God comes to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And what was the word God gave him to give to the people? Well, he went out into the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so he describes in a nutshell the ministry of John. It involved preaching for repentance, and it involved a baptism of repentance. But what's interesting is here he situates this ministry of repentance in, a, in between two different kingdoms, as it were. And I want you to notice the context of John's ministry of repentance. It's situated on the one hand between the kingdom of man and on the other, the impending, the coming kingdom of God. Notice uh, in verse 1 of chapter 3, it says this. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar... Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis. Some of you are like, wait a second, but who was the, the ruler of uh, Abilene at the time? Well, Licentius, tetrarch of Gabel- Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Now, that was a lot of names and places, and, uh, and the, the New Testament scholar N.C. Wright points out that John or Luke is giving us here, on one hand, uh, a chronological timestamp. He's telling us when the ministry of John the Baptist was occurring, and it was the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, which was around 26, 27, 28 A.D. as far as we know. But N.T. Wright points out that he's doing more than providing a chronological time marker, because behind this list of names and places is a dark story of oppression and misery that was building to a breaking point. You see, Rome had ruled the area for about 100 years, and only since 86 had there been a Roman governor resident in the area, living in Caesarea on the Mediterranean coast, but also keeping a base in Jerusalem. And uh, Augustus Caesar, the first emperor, died in AD 14, and his place had been taken by the ruthless Tiberius, Tiberius, toward the end of his life, really went insane, and he was in a period of dark insanity and violence uh, during the period of John the Baptist and of Jesus. And his, uh, his, his, his behavior was obscene and oppressive and marked by violence and just disgusting pedophilia and all kinds of rank, debase, terrible stuff that was very characteristic of... The kingdoms at that time and the rulers, the leaders who 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 led those kingdoms. But he also lists uh, the names of Herod and Pilate, who were Roman puppets in other regions of the Roman Empire. And then a little bit later he talks about Annas and Caiaphas. And so here he's talking about both the political and religious leaders. And interestingly, almost every name on this list colluded together to have the innocent son of God cruelly mutilated and crucified on a Roman cross. And so I think what what Luke is getting at here is he's saying, John the Baptist comes on the scene in the midst of a dark period of the kingdoms of man. These kingdoms that are marked by oppression and darkness, and violence, and immorality, and all kinds of, of rank, ugly, debased stuff. But in the midst of these dark kingdoms, another kingdom is breaking in. And he speaks of this in the, the next verse, in verse 4. It says this, As it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, Throughout the Old Testament, the ancient prophets spoke in poetry about a coming day when God's kingdom would break into the kingdoms of man and the glory of God would return to the earth. And the prophet Isaiah described it like this. He said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. This is the role of John the Baptist, by the way, preparing the way of the Lord, he says, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God." The imagery in Isaiah 40, it says the crooked shall be made straight, the rugged ground shall be made level. And the poet here is conjuring up uh, the image of the expanse of arid land abounding in ravines and ridges and rough terrain that stretched between Babylon where Israel was in exile and Judah their homeland. And he imagines this miraculous smoothing out of the ground as a great highway is laid down for the return of God among his people. And the language and the imagery is drawn from a, a triumphing king. You think about a royalty coming into a, a new city. And in order to prepare the way for the royalty to come in in the ancient world, they'd have to create a new highway so that when the royalty is going down on his his chariot, you know, he's not bumping it up and down because, you know, kings don't want to do that, right? So you'd have to put, you know, a whole new road down. And here the prophet is envisioning a day when the king over every king, the ultimate divine royalty, God in his glory himself, would come down into earth and God's glory would return, and He would return to establish His kingdom, His healing, justice bringing peaceable kingdom on earth, even as it is in heaven. And on that day, God would expose all of the darkness of the kingdoms of man, and he would bring judgment and his fire upon the kingdoms of man, and he would establish his kingdom of justice and peace and love, and the presence and the glory of God would cover the earth on that day as the waters covered the sea. And so do you see what Luke is doing? He's situating the ministry of John the Baptist between these two kingdoms, the kingdoms of man and their darkness and their oppressive ways, and the kingdom of God that is going to break into the world when God's glory returns to earth. And by doing this, he is showing that John is not a moralizer. He is not uh, somebody who's into behavior modification. John is a prophet of the true and living God, And he is calling not simply for us to do a little bit better. He is announcing the coming kingdom of God. In other words, John is the prophet who stands at the turn of the ages. He stands at the edge of one world, pointing his finger toward the beginning of another. And so when John comes preaching repentance as a voice, he stands as a voice at the turn of the ages, announcing the judgment on one kingdom and the inauguration of a whole other kingdom, a whole other kind of creation, a whole world, a new world birth right in the middle of the world we inhabit now. Fleming Rutledge, uh, theologian and pastor, puts it like this. She says the appearance of John on the edge on the world stage means that the turn of the ages has come. John's divinely ordained location in the world according to the New Testament is on the frontier of the ages as God arrives in the world to turn it away from its past of sin and bondage towards a future of promise and freedom. John's function is to proclaim the coming reversal of the downward spiral of human history and to deliver a message of the impending kingdom of God. And so John's function in this is to prepare us for this new kingdom. And to do that, he calls us to repent. And the essence of what he's calling for when he says to repent is he's calling us to reorient ourselves around this new kingdom of justice and peace and love that is breaking into the world in Jesus. In other words, to repent is not simply to say you're sorry or uh, in the words of that one book that was published a while back, mistakes were made. The subtitle was, but not by me. It was commenting on the political discourse and the, the way politicians make apologies. Repentance is far more than that. Repentance is about orienting yourself, your life, your imagination, your values, your ethics around the kingdom of God that is breaking into the world in Jesus a kingdom that is marked preeminently by righteousness and justice and love, by truth and beauty and goodness. And so to repent, to change in its essence, is to turn away from the kingdoms of man that are corrupt and full of darkness and to orient yourself and your life around the kingdom of God that is breaking into the world in Jesus. Now that raises a question, doesn't it? What does that look like, and what does that mean? And that's the question that John's hearers were no doubt asking. What does this even look like? You know, this is big. The kingdoms of God. The kingdom of God is breaking into the world. And as the story of Luke unfolds, the shocking and surprising and counter-intuitive and countercultural. Nature of this new kingdom of Jesus that is marked by the humble king who doesn't use a military, you know, power to overthrow his enemies, but instead lays down his life in cruciform, sacrificial, self-giving love. You know, what does it look like to orient your life around this kingdom? Well, look at what uh, uh, John says next as the passage unfolds. And we're going to note something of the fruit of the repentance. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, you know, you family of snakes, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees, and every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. When the kingdom of God breaks into the world, it will both expose and judge the darkness as well as bring God's kingdom to bear and to inaugurate that kingdom of justice and love right in the middle of the earth. But the thing I want to point out about what John says is he makes note of this idea of bearing fruit of repentance. He says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. It's as if he's saying, look, it will not do for you to come out and to engage in the religious ritual of getting plunged under the waters of baptism. That is not enough. I'm looking for more than a religious ritual. I'm looking for deep and meaningful and real change of heart and life. A life that is truly oriented around the kingdom of God. But again, what does that look like? I heard recently that uh, most pastors on the Myers Briggs—you guys know the Myers Briggs, you know that personality test. Have you guys taken the Myers Briggs? But uh, one of the the uh, you know letters is N, and then N is contrasted with S. So you're either N or you're S. N refers to somebody who's intuitive, and what that means is you're basically more of an abstract thinker, kind of future-oriented, big idea person. And then uh, the S is kind of on the other end, which is much more of a concrete, practical, tangible person. And I read recently that uh, something around 80 to 90 percent of all pastors are Ns, while their congregations are 80 to 90 percent Ss. And so pastors prefer to uh, live in the world of the abstract and the ideas and the future vision, whereas the, the people that are coming are like, come on, pastor, just give me something concrete and practical I can go home with, you know? Well, this is the people. Notice what the crowd say to John verse 10. The crowd said, well, what shall we do then? John, tell us what to do. And John doesn't disappoint. He gets practical and tangible. Look at what he says. He answered them, well, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors came also to be baptized, and they said, well, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, "Well, collect no more than you are authorized to do. And the soldiers asked him, well, what shall we do? And he said, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation. You know, they held the power of Caesar at their back. And so they could coerce and threaten people, and almost nobody had any recourse. And that kind of power is dangerous in a child of Adam and Eve, right? And so sometimes they'd extort money from people with threats of violence or by false accusation. He said, instead, just be content with your wages. What does it look like to repent? What does it look like to work this out in real time in our daily lives? And I just want to note three observations about what John says. And and the first one, uh, you know, I, I got some good news and bad news about the first observation. The good news is, is that John is very concrete about what this looks like. The bad news is, is that when he gets concrete, the first thing he talks to us about is money. Isn't this interesting, you know? What does it look like to orient your life around the kingdom of God and the ethics of the kingdom? Well, certainly it's gonna work itself out in the three areas of sex and money and power, which are three of the core places where we find ourselves most in tension between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world. But notice the first issue he deals with is money and he gets really practical. He says, look, we don't need to get in a big discussion about this. We don't need to have a debate about who is worthy of receiving my help about whether or not they're gonna go out and spit it on booze or whatever, and what about you know creating systems of dependence and all of this stuff. We have all kinds of debates we wanna get into, and of course, there's some worth in going into those debates about when and how and how much to give and all this stuff, but one thing there's no debate about, if you are a follower of Jesus and you're orienting your life around the kingdom, part of, one of the places where it's gonna work itself out is how you spend your money And one of the places where you will see your money being spent differently is you will start sharing more of what you have with those who do not have. One of the features of the kingdoms of this world that's certainly characterized by America right now in the 21st century, almost now more than ever in our nation's history, is there is a growing divide between rich and poor. And the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. But in God's kingdom, that is not the way things work. This is a kingdom where all human beings have worth and dignity, where God doesn't give you an abundance so that you can spend more and more of what you have simply on yourself and your own creaturely comforts, but God entrusts us with wealth and possessions so that we might open up our hands and share it with others. So here's the first place where John says repent. The crowds are like, what should we do? He's like, well, here it is. Do you have two cloaks? Share with one who has none. Do you have food? Do you have excess food? Share. You think, what does it look like to start orienting my life this Christmas around the kingdom of God, to be prepared for the day when the curtain is called back and Christ. Enters into this world again in glory and establishes his kingdom of justice and love and sharing and hospitality. It means right now to celebrate that kingdom through deeds of justice and love and sharing and hospitality and generosity and how we use and handle our possessions. So, number one, the first fruit of repentance deals with our money. Secondly, second fruit, kind of concrete way in which this works out, is it works out in our vocations, what we're doing Monday through Friday, not primarily with what we do on Sunday. Notice what he says. They say, what should we do? And John doesn't say, make sure you go to synagogue on Sunday or Saturday. Go to church. He doesn't even say, read your Bible every day. Though no doubt he's concerned about you going to church and reading your Bible, But he doesn't say that. Instead, he points to their vocation. And he speaks to tax collectors and to soldiers. And what's interesting to me is that these two professions were complicit with the Roman government. These were two professions that were easily compromised. And it's fascinating because he doesn't tell them to abandon their jobs. Instead, he tells them to uh, orient how they do their jobs around the ethics of the kingdom of God. And friends, this is our work in whatever vocation you are called to, whether you are a teacher or a lawyer or you're a nurse or you are a, a, a you know, car mechanic or your vocation is to school your children at home or you're a pastor. I'm talking to myself. You know, the, the call is to orient how we do our work around the ethics and the values of the kingdom of God that are on full display in Jesus in order so that we might look more and more like Jesus in how we do what we are called to do with the work of our hands and our daily vocation. And so it works out in our daily work and vocation. And look, I found this interesting again because these were professions that were compromised and complicit and it's almost impossible for us to engage in this world and in our daily lives, lives without in some point being compromised or complicit in sort of like the kingdoms of this world. But our calling is not to pull out of this world and go live in caves somewhere and pray. Our call is to do our vocations in a unique way that is distinctly shaped and formed by the values and the ethics Of the kingdom of God. And this is where repentance begins to work itself out. It works itself out in our money. It works itself out in our vocations. But the third thing I want you to notice is that it works itself out in your personal life. And I I wanted to to emphasize this because, you know, I, I think a lot of us have opinions and ideas about how things should be different in the culture around us does anybody in the house have any ideas about how politicians could do things differently about how money and government could be spent differently do any of you carry ideas about how the driver on the freeway could drive differently i mean do you got ideas about other people But it's interesting because what he calls them to is not to concern themselves so much with everyone else out there. There's enough change in your own heart and life that needs to be dealt with before you start worrying about everyone else out there, right? I was listening to a pastor... Uh, yesterday, uh, a conversation with a pastor named Brian Zand. It was just this brilliant discussion, interview with him. And, and he, he made this point. He said, look, he said, I think Christians are far too concerned with thinking they need to go out and change the world. That our vocation is to save the world, to change our culture and all this stuff. And listen, the world is not yours to save. That, that job is way beyond your pay grade and mine. It belongs to Jesus himself. He is the savior of the world. And so our focus is not so much on changing the world. The focus should more be on changing yourself. And listen, if you draw a circle on the ground and you you say, Lord Jesus, start changing the one who's in the circle, you know what's going to happen? The little pocket of the world you inhabit will start to change, and the world will start to change. It's not that God's not interested in those things. It's just that it begins here and now with us. And so, number one, we've seen what repentance is about. The, in its essence, it's about orienting our lives around Jesus and his kingdom that's breaking in. And we've seen the fruit of this repentance. It works itself out in how we orient our spending patterns, our checking account. It works itself out in how we do our vocations, our daily jobs, and it works itself out in our personal lives. But I want you to see where it begins. This is fascinating to me. I was thinking about this all week. So, um, you know, for some of us, we might think that John the Baptist is somewhat like that lady in line behind Alicia at Whole Foods who just walks up and just starts dropping you know, harsh language on people. You know, John just shows up in your backyard. He's like, you brood of viper, you need to repent, you know. And then he goes down to, you know, the pier in Seal Beach. And he, he interrupts, you know, nice young couples out on a date and says, you snakes, you need to repent, you know. And, and, and John the Baptist is that guy showing up at the football games, you know, with the sandwich board saying, repent, you're going to hell. Turn or burn. That's not what's happening in our text. Not at all. Not by a long stretch, John the Baptist has not gone and invaded anyone's space. They've come to him. And John didn't even start telling them what to do. They asked him, and that's why they told him what to do. Which, by the way, just as a uh, little uh, trick of having a real voice in somebody's life, wait until somebody asks you your opinion before you give it. I say that to myself. (laughs) Except for when you come to church, you know, I can't do that. I assume you're here, so you're asking for, um, not my opinion. You want to know what the Bible says, right? That's what I try to give you as best I can. But when, why, why did they, why did John start speaking to them about what they should do? It's well, because they were asking questions. And listen, change in our life begins when we start asking new questions. When we start asking new questions about our checking accounts, when we start asking new questions about how we're doing our jobs, about how we're living in the neighborhood, about how we are engaged in our community, we start asking new questions about the social ills around us and, like, what is my personal responsibility toward the problems that I'm seeing? Change begins to happen when you start asking new questions. I think in the church in America, so often what we lack is is any kind of imagination and curiosity that asks new questions about anything. We assume we've got things figured out, we don't have things figured out. There are a whole new set of questions a lot of us, including myself, need to be asking about how we're engaging in life in this world and whether or not our lives are lining up with the values and the priorities of the kingdom of God that was inaugurated in Jesus Christ. And so it begins when we start asking new questions. But listen, why are they even asking new questions? Well, presumably the reason why they, they bypassed the synagogue and they bypassed the temple in Jerusalem and they went all the way out in the wilderness to listen to this fiery prophet in animal skins eating insects is because what was going on around them wasn't working for them. And usually change happens When stuff around us is just not working for us, that's when we're starting asking new questions. Like, this is just not working. Like, something's wrong in my life. Something's wrong in my soul. I've got this anxiety, I've got this depression. Something's wrong in my relationships and my family's falling apart and and something's wrong and I need help and we start asking new questions. You know, oftentimes, uh, I think it was Tony Robbins, you know, great self-help guru who said that change happens when the pain of remaining the same becomes greater than the pain necessary to change. Right? I mean, isn't that the first step in Alcoholics Anonymous? You know, I, I recognized that, that my life had become unmanageable. I had become powerless over my own life. I needed something beyond myself that we start asking new questions. And friends, this is where change really begins. When we start realizing that the resources that humanity has on offer is just not sufficient to deal with the nature of our problems. We need something bigger, something more profound, something transcendent, something beyond ourselves, God himself. And it's when we recognize that need and we start asking, what does it look like to find a new way of being human? A new way of engaging in life in this world that's healing, that's marked by intelligence and goodness and love and righteousness and truth and beauty. We start asking these new questions that we begin to to start this journey of change. And so ultimately change, it really doesn't simply begin with questions and it doesn't even begin with need. Change begins with God himself. The whole ministry of John the Baptist, it was not John's idea. Salvation was not John's idea. Salvation began with God himself, a God who determined that he will not let us be in the grip of darkness and the kingdoms of this world that are corrupt. You know, I don't know about you, but I, I, you know, I I love our country, and and I'm, you know, I I think that, that, you know, our our nation is, 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 you know, it's the worst place to live except for everywhere else in the world, you know? Uh, You know, it's the worst form of government except for all the other ones. But, you know, Washington is a mess, and it's corrupt. It's corrupt on the left and on the right. Our hope cannot be in politics. Our hope cannot be in the Democrats, and it can't be in the Republicans, and it can't be in political candidates. Our hope has to be in God. It has to be in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God that was birthed into this world, the light breaking into the darkness In that old, tumble-down stable so many years ago. In the humble, meek child of Bethlehem that came in, showing us that there is a better, a truer, a more beautiful way of being human. And if you will just come to me, you will release yourself and you will entrust yourself into my care. You will release the reins of your life so that I can be king. You will welcome this kingdom into your heart. You can begin on this journey, this path of change. Now, of course, we've only just begun. The path of change is the work of a lifetime, amen? But we're in it together. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now and we confess, God, to be a people who need your grace and your salvation and your healing. We praise you and we thank you that when we come to you, all we need is need. And God, many of us come into this space and we've got our confusion And uh, we don't have a lot going on in our life right now. We feel spinning. We're out of control. We've got need. And we come to you, God, because you are God and we are not. And we need you. We need your kingly rule to break into our life. And so come, Holy Spirit, and break into our hearts in fresh ways. Stir us up today, God, so that we could ask new questions. And that in asking new questions, we might find new profound answers that come to us from your voice and your word and your son, Jesus. And it's in his name that we ask these things. Amen.